Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 41st episode of 2022. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank our Fiber for Breakfast sponsors, including our gold sponsors, Graybar and Vetro. You know, great news in Washington last week as President Biden appointed Andy Burke, Administrator, Administrator of the RUS um, at USDA. Andy is, was the former mayor of Chattanooga and knows firsthand the significant positive economic impact that fiber can deliver to a community. Most recently, Andy was serving as a special representative for broadband at NTIA. And so he has a, we'll see a really tight and collaborative relationship between Andy and NTIA. You know, Andy was our opening keynote at Fiber Connect um, in Nashville earlier this year, and we wish him the best in his new role. Speaking of NTIA, the Middle Mile program received more than 235 applications, totaling $5.5 billion in grant applications. That's five times the funds available. These Middle Mile grants will go out the door in mid-first quarter as NTI will want to kind of keep things rolling. On Friday, Treasury announced they'll allocate $435 million for broadband projects in Massachusetts, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And that's expected to connect over 90,000 homes. The funds come from the $10 billion of the Coronavirus Capital Projects Fund that was created by ARPA. On the Fiber Broadband Association front, our next regional Fiber Connect workshop will be in Columbus, Ohio on November 3rd. Our room block is just about sold out, so please register today because you're not going to want to miss this. Also, later today at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Fiber Broadband Association, along with WI, will host a special industry association's webinar, Leveraging B for Workforce Development. This is part of our industry education series for the state broadband offices in NTI, and these sessions are open to the public, so go to webinars on our website and register. Next Wednesday, I'll also be doing a webinar with my friends at Lightwave on enabling next-generation broadband, so hopefully you can join us for that as well. So today we have a very interesting fire for breakfast on fiber to every rural home, feed is more than enough with Jonathan Chambers, partner at Connexon. Jonathan and Connexon are arguably the leading experts on rural broadband. You know, last week at Fire for Breakfast, we discussed future-proofing the world's fastest internet and why EPB took the leap to 25 gig with my good friend, Katie Esbeth of EPB. It's extremely exciting to see Chattanooga going from the first gigabit city in the world to the first 10 gig city, and now the first 25 gig city. Today in our Fiber for Breakfast session is with Jonathan Chambers at Connexon, who's gonna explain why fiber to every rural home, feed is more than enough. For over 30 years, Jonathan Chambers has influenced the development of government telecommunications policies and the development of internet access networks. Early in his career, Chambers served as Republican Staff Director for the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. And during that time, the committee overhauled most of the federal laws that today are still governing wireless, cable, telephone, and internet access. 
He later served as the FCC Chief of the Office of Strategic Planning, where he is a principal advocate for reforms that altered $12 billion in annual FCC spending from support of voice services to support of broadband and from incumbent subsidies to competitive bidding. Early in 2016, Chambers has worked with rural, or so today, since early 2016, you know, has worked with rural electric co-ops uh, de deploying fiber broadband. He's widely viewed as one of the industry's foremost experts on rural broadband funding, and under his leadership, cooperatives have co collectively secured more federal broadband funding for fiber construction than any other group in the country. So with all that, welcome, Jonathan. Uh, for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll get to hit that at the end in our Q&A session. With that, let's get things started, and I will turn it over to Jonathan. Thanks, Gary. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I think like most everybody on this call, um, I get a lot of emails. Um, I get a lot of announcements and, and invitations to, to, you know, events, webinar sessions like this one, and I usually just click through and delete them, but I, one caught my eye a few weeks ago from the Fiber Broadband Association suggesting that uh, BEAD was inadequate to fund fiber. Um, and so, again, I usually just delete things like that, but this one, I don't know, stuck in my craw uh, because of the history of pronouncements like that. Um, and, and, and so for context, or to, to start with the question of why does it even matter whether the BEAD program budget is sufficient? Um, let me remind those of you who were around at the time and those who are too young to remember a decade ago, um, what happened when the FCC determined that there was not enough public money to get fiber to every home. So in 2009 and then published in 2010, the FCC prepared a national broadband plan. Um, it used that plan to implement federal policies and telecommunications for most of the decade afterwards. That is, the plan itself was a blueprint um, followed assiduously by the FCC for years. In the preparation of that plan, and you can still look at the plan today, it's, you know, it's online, it's got, oh, a dozen or so chapters and hundreds of pages and subchapters and recommendations. Well, in that plan, those that were preparing the work, um, which included a group of McKinsey consultants, uh, did a budget for at least a calculation of how much it would cost to build fiber to every rural home. Um, and their calculation was that it would be over $300 billion to do so. Um, the reason that was significant was because at the same time they were preparing that uh, national broadband plan, they were also preparing the budget for the FCC. And the FCC had determined that it would collect and spend of the public's money about four and a half billion dollars annually for rural broadband. So simple math, four and a half billion dollars a year over 10 years, that was the budget, $45 billion. Not sufficient if you thought it would cost $300 billion or more than $300 billion for fiber. 
the result of that calculation was that the FCC made a series of decisions to exclude certain areas from broadband funding, the so-called extremely high cost area, to dumb down the standards down to four megabits per second down, one megabit per second up, to examine alternative technologies as being sufficient for rural America, even though the FCC believed they were insufficient for the rest of the country. Uh, and to begin to fund, so this wasn't just planning, this was the expenditure of public funds for public purpose, that is closing the digital divide, except the expenditure led to a widening of the digital divide over the decade after that. So the FCC funded DSL, the FCC funded fixed wireless, the FCC funded satellite, the FCC funded alternative technologies, even though the FCC itself, the experts at the FCC, folks in my uh, former group, all believed that fiber to the premise was the best expenditure of public funds. It was the mismatch between the budgeting, the mismatch between the, the um, projections as to cost and the amount of funding the FCC had available, which led to a decade's worth of misspent funds and a digital divide, which of course included that when the country needed it most, needed broadband most, when rural areas were hit as we all were during the pandemic with an inability to travel and work and go to school in person, rural America was left out. So when I saw this question posed, and I know that's a slow pitch to finally get to, to the point of this presentation, um, it matters. The decisions matter, the budgeting and projections matter. And if the leading fiber association of the country is gonna take the position that there's not enough money for fiber, it's going to affect policymakers. It's going to affect NTIA and the FCC and every state broadband office when they're planning their budget for BEAD. So I'm going to run through here today with you our own calculations um, as, as to whether the $42.5 billion, $42.45 billion that's going to be allocated to each state and spent over the course of the coming years, whether that's enough to get fiber to the home. Um, first, just as a matter of how we look at it. So what you see that that map um, on the right-hand side of this slide, um, I put the URL there. We've made this information publicly available. We have calculated too. We have calculated the cost of constructing fiber to every single location in the country. We've calculated the cost of that. We've shown our work. You can look it up. The colors of that map are just an overlay of what's unserved, what's underserved, what is, is um, uh, receiving RDOF funding, what's receiving Connect America funds, at least through the auction. It's an interactive map. You can play with it. Um, we did these calculations based on our costs of construction. Um, we work primarily with rural electric cooperatives, as you mentioned. Um, we have under construction today about 10% of the geography of the country. 
Um, we've modeled out about 20% of the geography of the country. So where we have a lot of construction, like in Georgia or in Missouri or Arkansas, our estimates as to the, the cost of constructing out the, for the whole state, we think are pretty accurate. There are some parts of the country we don't have a lot of good data. We don't build in California, for example. So I'd say our projections in California are a little less accurate. Um, but we didn't prepare this map in order to show um, whether bead was enough. You know, we model like other people. The way to calculate whether bead is enough comes down to those two questions I put on the left. That is, how many locations are eligible? And what is the average cost per location that is public funding? Not the cost to construct, but how much public funding is necessary. And the difference between making projections today in 2022 and my friends who were making those projections back in 2010, the difference is we have a lot more data. My, um, my old pal Blair Levin, who ran the National Broadband Plan um, work, um, I, he, he called me a year or two ago up and, and said, look, you know, you can't criticize us for not knowing how much it cost back in 2010. There wasn't sufficient data. There is today. Um, there's a lot of data today because there's been a lot more construction of fiber today than there had been then, particularly construction in rural areas. And more importantly, there have been funding programs and funding programs that have used competitive mechanisms. So one of the things the National Broadband Plan recommended was to use competitive bidding in order to determine how the funding should be spent, who should get the money, what the money should be spent on. It's those various programs across the country that have been um, rolled out since 2010 that reveal what the true cost is of building fiber to the home and how much public funding is needed. So if you go to the next slide, this is a very busy slide. It's meant to simply make a couple of points. One is a decade ago, the FCC in particular and some others were using models in order to determine how much public funding should be used to build networks. These models, the Connect America, cost model, CAM or CACM, uh, the alternative Connect America model, the second version of that, those were used to produce estimates for subsidies that would then be made available in an offer and an acceptance of that offer by the telephone industry. It was an effort by the FCC to use model-based funding and move away from rate of return-based funding. That's simply all it was. But as I mentioned, the National Broadband Plan recommended and the FCC adopted competitive bidding mechanisms. That's what the Connect America Fund II auction was about, the RDOF auction and the state programs. Some used uh, auctions like the state of New York, some used application processes. It's in those state and federal funding programs that you can determine how much funding would be necessary out of BEAD or any other um, uh, public funding program. And what you see is really interesting. So while 
the model-based programs, for example, the, the CACM suggested $400 per location per year, or say $4,000 over 10 years for subsidies. And then the ACAM, $8,000 and then $10,000 per location. The competitive bidding mechanisms reveal something very different, a much lower amount. Makes sense, right? If, if it's a sole source model-based amount, you're gonna have something higher than if you have a comp competition for that money. And what it revealed is pretty consistent. Over five, six, seven years now, the competitive bidding mechanisms consistently show that if you require, as a state funding program, where you require fiber to the home, the amount of public funding works out on average to be about $2,000 per location. That was true in the state of New York when they rolled out their $500 million program. It was true more recently in Virginia. It was true in the Connect America Fund auction where we bid in the CAF 2 auction. We received um, $186 million for about um, uh, 15% of the total fund, 15% of the total locations, which is to say we received about half of the model-based funding in the CAF2 funding, or about $2,000 per location. The ReConnect program, the CARES Act programs, the RDOF program, where you look at ARPA programs, the American Rescue Plan Act programs, you continue to see that fiber applications end up receiving on average around $2,000 per location. Sometimes it's a little more, $2,500 up to 3,000, sometimes it's a little less, but on average, the tens of billions of dollars that has been spent over the last few years and allocated for fiber construction typically works out to about $2,000 per location on average. In less dense areas, of course, it's a little bit higher. In, in more dense areas, it's a little bit lower. But that's the, that should be one guidepost for budgeting how much money is necessary for fiber to the home. And I'll keep repeating, you know, I know this is the Fiber Broadband Association and fiber to the home is what we do for a living. It's important to demonstrate that to policymakers, because I'm telling you, if, if, if you can convince a policymaker that, that there is sufficient budget for fiber to the home, they will adopt that policy. The FCC will, NTIA will, state broadband offices will, they want to build fiber to the home. It's only in the cases when you tell a broadband office that, that there's not enough money, that they'll have to, they'll have to settle second best, third best, fourth, fourth best alternatives. It's only when they're settling that they choose something other than fiber to the home. And, and the data has become overwhelming, showing that if with the use of a competitive bidding mechanism and an insistence on, on closing the digital divide, not waving at it as it goes by, Closing the digital divide means having the same level of service, the same types of networks in rural areas as you have in urban areas, which means fiber to the home. It's the best investment of public funds. 
Now, the second question, whether it's $2,000 or $2,500 per location, you still have to know how many locations if you're doing a budget. So go to the next slide, because here's the other thing that's occurred over the last three or four years that's really, really interesting, which is um, while, I don't know who's waiting really for the federal, for the FCC's national broadband map, the new iteration of the broadband map, except I know that the, um, you know, the, the bead funding is waiting on that, but the states aren't waiting. The states aren't waiting, communities aren't waiting, others aren't waiting to build. So here, I'm just gonna show you Georgia because Georgia is pretty far along in its, um, its fiber planning, its fiber construction, its public funding. They've done a great job. They had a program, two rounds of ARPA. They've just started their second round of the American Rescue Plan Act funding. Here's a map prior to the first round. The darker shaded colors, were the served areas. So everything that was lighter shaded in this map was eligible for funding. I put the numbers there. They had a $400 million program in the first round. There were 482,000 unserved locations eligible for funding. You see what the second round is. The thing that we just applied for last week, 82,000 is left for another $240 million. George is gonna get the job done before they get a billion dollars from bead. Go to the next slide, I'll show it to you in, in, a, in a map form. The left is before the first round, the right is before the second round. There's still $240 million spent to, to cover those remaining light colored areas. By the time we get to bead, there may be fewer than 10,000, maybe fewer than 5,000 unserved locations left in Georgia. It isn't just about Georgia though, because South Carolina is doing the same thing and New Hampshire is doing the same thing and Arkansas is doing the same thing. And so is Tennessee and Kentucky and every state in the country. So the other point as to whether bead is enough is what's gonna be left for bead after ARPA. There's gonna be something, but the number of locations left, we estimate the number across the country is gonna be fewer than 10 million across the country. Fewer than 10 million times 2,000, of course, leaves a lot of extra money. And every state has an incentive to use the money because it's use it or lose it money. And then I'm gonna stop here. We can go to the last slide just to say, the question of whether bead is enough. Yeah, it's an interesting enough question. And I know I've just taken you know 20 minutes talking about it. But the implications and the other questions that, that flow from what's already going on is, is, is fascinating. We're at a period of time in which, in which the public is demanding, the, the companies are stepping up to it, and a lot of policymakers are also stepping up to closing, closing the digital divide once and for all. And the way you close the digital divide is you build fiber to every single rural home. Thanks, Jonathan. And um, just to be clear, um, you know, when Fiber Broadband Association does these fiber breakfasts, um, we allow our guests to express their opinions, which don't necessarily align with the, our opinions, because uh, we want to, our audience to hear from everybody and every side of every argument. So, um, you know, so yeah, I don't want to be confused. 
Thanks for the clarification, Gary. I wasn't suggesting that the Fiber Broadband Association was taking the position that bead wasn't enough. I was suggesting the opposite, that it ought to affirmatively take the position that bead is enough. Because if the Fiber Broadband ta Association takes that position with data in front of state broadband offices, it goes a long ways to convincing state grand broadband offices that they have enough money. Takes that position in front of communities who want fiber. Takes that position in front of federal, state, and local officials and communities themselves. It'll go a long way. Well, the other part that I think is critical and I think you support is that we're building out critical infrastructure. And so it's not just about broadband, but it's being able to have that fiber that can support 5G, can support smart grid modernization, can support public safety. And so, you know, when you get these questions of why can't we just put out satellite or, or wireless? Um, and that was one of the questions um, early on was, you know, why wouldn't wireless be sufficient to serve some of these rural areas? How do you respond to that? Yeah, I guess my, my way of answering the question is to go to the hardest to serve, poorest places in the country and demonstrate that you can build fiber there. I think a lot of people who know me know that, that um, uh, I've, I've grown to care deeply about East Carroll Parish, Louisiana, which is um, by many measures, the poorest place in the country. We're gonna build a fiber network to every home and business in East Carroll Parish, Louisiana. It will be a demonstration that you can build fiber everywhere. And, and, and I have offered to the folks there one step further, which is I think they ought to own the network. We will own the network in under the current arrangements. That is, we have grant, we have some art off funds, we will own the network. But my view is that it ought to be a community owned network. We work with electric co-ops. There's no electric co-op up there. Um, so instead, my suggestion to the people who live there is form a broadband cooperative, own the assets. To me, the real difference between a decade ago when the fiber broadband, excuse me, it was called the fiber to the home council, but when they were looking and advocating, when the FCC was looking and advocating, there weren't a lot of cooperatives. We work with electric cooperatives because that's a model that works. I hear a lot of people analogize to the 1930s and the rural electrification movement. And, and what I often say is to us, it's not an analogy. It's what we actually do. That is that model, a uniquely American institution, rural electric cooperatives, that model has worked to build and sustain rural areas for 85 years. It'll work for broadband too. And where there is not a rural electric cooperative form a rural broadband cooperative. Hey, Jonathan, so one of the questions is, you know, your $2,000 to home pass, uh, is that 100% of the bill or just the public portion to supplement, you know, how much then you need private capital yeah. need to augment? It's, it's an average. It's an average, again, as revealed by, this is, this is revealed money, revealed through auctions, application programs, what do people apply for? How much public funding do they need? that's an average. Of course, if you're in an area where you're only, you know, two, three homes per mile, you're going to need more than $2,000 per location there. But in an area where you're 10, 12 homes per mile, 
you're going to need less. That's the average across the country. It shows up consistently. It means you'll have more money that's needed in Wyoming and Nebraska and Montana and Texas. You'll need more money in those states than you do in, say, Georgia and South Carolina and Vermont because of population density, because of terrain, because of the cost of construction. Um, but the average, because all I'm getting at here, and if you look at our um, if you look at our map and our calculations, we've done it down to the census block level. We display it by county. Of course, it's different by county. It's different by parts of the country. It's the average, but you know, you get into more detail, which we don't have time to do here, and you'll see that it varies depending on where you are in the country and the population density. Well, Jonathan, just really appreciate so much, and we really appreciate the work that, and leadership that you and Connection are doing to, with rural America to help close the digital divide. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today and look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're going to hear the counter-argument, Millions Left Behind Beat Isn't Enough to Close the Digital Divide with Larry Thompson, of a partner at Vantage Point. Um, so you're not going to want to miss that. So thanks, everyone. Um, we'll get together again next week.